welcome to the next episode of the Compete Waffle. My name's Alicia. I'm an advanced sports dietitian and co-founder of Compete Nutrition. Now, over the years of being a sports dietitian, there are a few things that always come to mind and something that I talk about frequently. Number one is absolutely supplements. The, the amount of times I've asked about supplements is phenomenal, but for really good reason. And our next guest is an absolute expert in one of those supplements called creatine. Now, the reason we also asked him on is to chat through some of the things that we see in terms of head trauma or concussion in athletes because his research in creatine actually led him into really looking at the effects of concussion and also the possible benefits or place that creatine might have on athletes who have suffered from concussion. So we talk about all these things in this next episode and it is an absolute honor to have him on, honestly. What a phenomenal human, just an incredible guy, so lovely. Um, And I just feel really, really fortunate to have been introduced to him and have that opportunity to record this podcast via Zoom because he is based in the US. Uh, And we chatted through lots of things. We chatted through his obsession and passion from a very young age in terms of human performance and what he could just continually do to get better. Uh, And then that's where that led him in terms of his professional career when it looked at what are the opportunities here to improve human performance in different fields Um, and fields obviously in bigger numbers and the research projects that came from that are just incredible. He has given so much to the field of sports dietetics and for that reason I just don't know if I could ever thank him and as he mentions in this podcast the really you know intrinsic relationship between exercise and nutrition is one that we don't want to separate or can't separate so how do we really work those two together to create a performance in not only the elite athlete you'll hear about um, how different supplements and also different strategies in the everyday active all the way to the elderly population can translate from sports nutrition so it's been really nice to hear that message that we often say um, said from someone so high up in the field so this guy dr eric rawson is just phenomenal absolute powerhouse and so we'll go through all things creatine but also how his um, research in creatine led him to find all these different connections and possibilities when it came to concussion as well so without further ado honestly i just don't even want to put off playing this episode any longer it is all yours to absorb enjoy it is for everyone if you are a professional in exercise sports science if you are an athlete if you're an active every day if you are elderly this podcast has something for everyone and so enjoy please reach out with any questions we do refer to an image within this podcast so if you head to the show notes on our website i've linked them into the um, podcast notes so that you can link straight to it we've shared it there so that you can have a squeeze and really see what he's talking through in this podcast, um, which just adds a little bit more context. Some things are just better done with images and this is one of those things. So um, enjoy, have a really um, great listen and please reach out anytime via our website. Um, and I'll also link Dr. Rawson's um, Twitter as well um, so that you can be in touch and follow along there. So enjoy everyone and thank you. Welcome, Eric. What an absolute pleasure it is to connect with you, first of all, and next to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the kind invitation. I'm looking forward to a great discussion about all things nutrition. Yeah, we were saying that it was really hard to say no to Louise Burke when you get introed. <laughs> She's like, you're going to do this. <laughs> so I feel very grateful that Louise gave you the pressure to jump on here. It, it's hard to say no to that woman. and. 
Um, I'm, it's my pleasure to be referred by Louise Burke. Oh, it's just an absolute gem. Um, so what I was originally reaching out for um, is all things concussion. Now, I work in sports that concussion does happen uh, quite frequently. They're, they're contact sports. So also, you know, we do get a lot of questions from the everyday active as well around concussion, head trauma um, and nutrition strategies to do so. But you've also delved into lots of different research around supplements. Creatine in particular, I think we'll definitely have to delve into seeing as though you're with us. Um, so we'll cover a few things. But first of all, I think I would love to know just more around you, your passions, your obsessions, and we'll go from there. That's a wonderful way to, to, to start. Um, it's, um, it was obvious very early on that I was a little different. Um, I have to say that um, as a child, I was always very passionate or obsessed, if you like, with um, testing my physical limits. Oh, interesting. You know, so before we called it human performance or I knew what human performance was, I always wanted to see how, how far I could jump, how fast I could run, how long I could hold my breath, um, you know, how long I could ride on my bicycle on one wheel. And um, th that's what interested me. You know, I, I was, I was well-rounded enough as a child, but um, I didn't want to build things as, as much as I wanted to kind of build a superhuman. And um, you know, airplanes and rockets and those were interesting, but not as much as what I had in mind. So uh, I just enjoyed pushing my, my natural physical limits. And, and as a result, I was always, always, and this is again, not normal for children. I was always interested in the different ways I could push my performance. Uh, and that would be by practice. So skateboarding eight hours a day, or it would be by training you know, adding strength training, it was special foods, special exercises, special, special breathing techniques, um, herbs, potions, you know, anything. I was a bit of a weird child in that way. I, I think a lot of little boys were very active, but um, it, you know, the limits of what a human could do fascinated me. And, and you know, I, I, I never wanted to build a faster race car. Yeah. I've always wanted to build faster humans. Amazing. And it started just with your N equals one study. Yeah. It was yourself. Absolutely. I, I think if I was going to be honest, I would say it started with comic books. Yeah. And, what was your and, favorite? Oh, it, Incredible Hulk. Yeah. So, uh, and that reveals kind of yeah. the fact that it's, it's always been about um, skeletal muscle. So um, to me, when I think about human performance, I mostly think bigger, stronger, faster, more powerful. And when I say faster, I think faster sprints. So where, whereas I can appreciate the marathon and I follow the marathon and cycling, I've never had any desire to do any exercise that lasts longer than about 30 seconds. Awesome. And, um, you know, I, I, I love sport and, and it didn't matter the sport. Um, uh, adult sport, men, women. I just loved human performance. Um, but in terms of personal competing, it was going to be sprint and power and strength-based sports. Mm. And, and I think I learned something along the way, which was 
something I, I tried to pass on to my children I thought was important was you should try all sports, but you should pay attention to if you really enjoy team sports versus individual sports. And I liked team sports, but I loved and was very passionate about individual sports. Mm. And, and I'm exactly that way today. So I will, I love having 100% success or failure on me. And I will watch, you, you could find me watching powerlifting or strongman, but also figure skating or cycling or gymnastics, mm. anything that's, that's individual. Um, I'm, I'm very, very attracted to. Mm. Uh, and, you know, th that's all really stayed with me all the way up until today. And I, I think probably the, the biggest inspirations back then, beyond the comic books and, and the advertisements in the backs of the comic books, were um, people like Jack LaLanne. And, and Jack really combined his obsession and passion with nutrition and exercise. Yeah. And, um, and Jack was different because he wasn't just human performance. It had to be for health too. And, and that's something that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there were fascinating strength athletes, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s. There was Arnold. You know, all of a sudden we became aware of Arnold and we became aware of um, the great uh, Soviet uh, weightlifter, Vasily Alexiev. But there, there was one person who most people have never heard of, and his name was Bruce Randall. Yeah. And he was a former Mr. Universe, and I found a picture of him. And my brother, my oldest brother had a, a, a weight set and he had a how to lift weights book. And there's a picture of Bruce Randall as a strength athlete weighing 400 pounds, his body weight. Wow. And then there's a picture next to it of him competing at the Mr. Universe at about 220 pounds. Wow. And I, I usually show the slide in, in my lectures. Yeah. It was the, the transition that fascinated me that he did that with food. You know, exercise was involved, but he made that transition with food. And to me, back then and now, uh, today, it's always been about the interactions between nutrition and exercise. If, if you ask me an exercise question, I'll probably answer with a, give you a nutrition answer. Yeah. Or vice versa. I, I, I never thought they could be separated. And, yeah. and uh, I still don't. And, and um, they have to be connected to me for optimizing performance and uh, optimizing health. And, and then, you know, I think the, the, the final piece of the puzzle for me was graduate school. So I, I met this extraordinary woman, Priscilla Clarkson, uh, who Louise knew very well. And Priscilla turned out to be my mentor. And she studied skeletal muscle function and did a little bit of sport nutrition on the side. That was the connection with Louise. So, um, I walked into the lab and I said, you know, I want to take the biggest and fastest and strongest and make them bigger, faster, and stronger. Wow. And I'm interested in this nutrient creatine. And after some discussion, she said, you know, why, why are we applying this to people who are already big and strong? Why aren't we thinking about older adults? Yeah. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't know, I just never thought of it. And, and I started to study muscle from the perspective of aging. Mm -hmm. and, and all of the changes that I was excited about in terms of hypertrophy and increasing strength and power, all of these things were being reversed with aging. 
And I started to think about, wow, all the things we do every day, we talk about every day, we're passionate about the, the nutritional factors we're searching for. These all apply to successful aging. And it, it kind of broadened the way uh, I saw the world a, a little bit. Mm. Um, so, I love that. Yeah. And it's something that we talk about all the time in-house in because everyone's like, oh, well, performance dietetics. I'm not athlete enough to work with a performance dietitian or a sports dietitian. Yeah. Oh, I'm not athlete enough. And it's like, well, performance is something we all want to experience sure. and be part of. And yeah, those things that you're talking about are exactly um, where we can translate all those skills that we've learned for the athlete into the everyday. Absolutely. And, and no one wants to lose muscle. Everyone wants to have enough strength to, to be healthy. Um, it, it was, you know, an interesting time to uh, grow up because if you think of the 1970s, strength training was off limits for athletes. So I, I was experienced, and I don't know if your listeners are, are even old enough to remember or live through it like I did, but, you know, I remember if, if you were an athlete, a team sport or an individual athlete, you could get in a lot of trouble if you got caught lifting weights by your coach, mm. you know, that if we, they believed it, you know, it wasn't, there was no foundation for these beliefs, but they strongly believed strength training, increased your risk of injury, made you inflexible, you know, made you dumb, uh, lots and lots of bad things. And the people who are lifting weights knew quite the opposite, but you know, we were all N equal one. So, you know, eventually strength and conditioning spread through, you know, from your, your throwers in track and field and your, your gridiron football linemen, and, and it started to spread into other sports. And then eventually um, it became okay for older adults to lift weights and old and children to lift weights, scientifically speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I've got, I, you know, was born at the time where I got to live through this whole, um, evolution of, of strength and conditioning. That's been, uh, you know, just quite, quite fascinating to me, frustrating at the beginning, but now that we're all kind of on the same page, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's very fun. And I've, I've actually personally been on that journey because my background's in endurance. So I'm the opposite mm -hmm. where I've gone all the like yes. Ironman, triathlon, distance running, trail running. And then once I had kids, I was like, well, that's just not going to happen anymore. But also my body wasn't recovered enough anymore. And so I had to stop focusing on what I couldn't do, which was run. And I've gone into weights training. And I was like, well, suddenly I'm running better and suddenly I'm feeling better. And, and it's like the functional movement. I'm like, well, I should have been doing this when I was doing triathlon. Sure. That's a, a great example. You know, there's wonderful literature on the, the potential beneficial effects of strength training in endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's also been lovely to see um, the, the surge of um, research on uh, sprint interval training. Yes. Which seems to fit in nicely for the, the endurance athletes who are on kind of a hiatus and, and still need to train. And also for the strength athletes who do not want to run beyond 30 seconds, but need to work on their, their fitness. So it, it's a, a great time to be in nutrition and, and exercise science. Uh, again, I'll say I've never been able to separate nutrition and exercise. Uh, I don't think anybody should. And, and it's so great to be, to see so many things come to fruition that you were you were experimenting with on yourself, whether it was protein intake or, or sprinting or, you know, different types of endurance programs. Um, 
a lot of it's been published and, and well studied now. Love that. Yeah, what, what a ride. Like, I, I really love that you've taken that idea and concept, use it on yourself, but also use that passion to really levitate into where you're wanting to be professionally well, because then you're just playing then you're just having right. fun and investigating I'm, i couldn't be more fortunate than to ha be a professor of exercise science and to be able to think about and study and teach and share and inspire about the things that i'm as you said obsessed and, and passionate about I'm, I'm very lucky yeah i feel exactly the same way it's um yeah it, it's often often the way where you just, it doesn't feel like work. You're just playing. You, you're reading journal articles because you're like honestly curious and you're just like, I can't wait to delve into this new research or I can't wait to see how I can translate that to my athletes. And it's just this constant yes. play. Um, yeah. And I, I've tried to really make sure that that's how I voice that future to my kids now. Cause it's like, well, I, I am, I'm living it. And I would, that's if I can allow them to live that same thing where they're following their obsession from that early age, you know, it's so early. They, they show signs of what they're obsessed with and what they, they love so early. And let's kind of build on that. Absolutely. For, for me, it was um, the, the love of sport, the love of athletics. Um, it, it was always there. Um, and it, you know, it, I just love human performance, whatever it is. Yeah, super interesting. So let's let's delve into that human performance side now when it goes a little bit wrong. So, you know, we love sports. We delve into sports a lot. And I was saying to Dan when I was talking about concussion, my hubby, I was like, it's amazing that we do do sports that are so high risk when it comes to head injury. Um, but we are also so passionate about them that it just happens and we um, it's just part of the gig. But more and more so it's becoming a bigger conversation around not just the initial trauma but the ongoing effects and with the seriousness of head trauma um, there's a lot of considerations obviously not just in that short term but also long term so can you explain to us and feel free to use some imagery here that we can refer back to um, in the blog show notes but also we'll um, put up the video around what happens in a concussion um, and what is meant by the word concussion or the mild TBI or um, the traumatic brain injury. Right. Well, I, I, I think in its simplest sense, you know, um, a concussion is a, you know, a traumatic brain injury that affects your brain function. Um, you know, so a, a blow to the head causes an injury and, and that has some sort of subsequent effect. I, I should say though, that um, it's a bit odd for me to be talking about concussions because I'm not a concussion researcher per se. You know, if, if you had to um, really concisely summarize who I am professionally, it would be nutrition, muscle, and resistance training. Mm. And um, then specifically, it would be creatine. So I'd been studying creatine for years and years. And we had a few studies that indicated that uh, creatine would have benefits above and beyond skeletal muscle and, and brain benefits. Mm. So we started to think about for the first time, or I started to think about for the first time, things like cognitive processing and things like brain injury. You know, I'm a, I'm a neck down muscle physiologist. You have to remind me that the muscles don't act on their own um, because I spend so much time thinking in terms of muscle and, and that it's not the brain controlling everything. So I had to, creatine took me into studying brain metabolism Wow. to complement wow. muscle metabolism. And then 
um, just like I studied muscle damage and, and muscle dysfunction, creatine took me into the brain and then into brain injury. So the interesting thing about concussion, I think the two most interesting things are, are the volume of injuries, mm. right? In, in the US, uh, I think there are about a million and a half emergency room visits a year for concussion. And they think in athletes that it's uh, over, probably over three and a half million. And um, I don't know how accurate those numbers are. I, I know that the, the people who do, you know, concussion epidemiology type research, they're doing great work and they're, they're doing their best um, and they're doing it better. But I, I think we're in a period where we're refining and improving reporting mm. and diagnosis mm. uh, at the level of the athletic trainer and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the athlete's team. Um, but I think we're also seeing more purpose, more purposeful misreporting, you know, um, and this unfortunately happens at all levels. So you may have a child athlete who they've reached their quota for concussions. Sports is now over. And the family might consider withholding that. Right. And you have professional athletes who have millions of dollars on the line and they may not be honest. And we, we have great evidence of that too, right? There's several retired athletes who've gone on to be interviewed who have said, you know, I've, I've had, uh, you know, 15 concussions that I can remember, probably more like 23. Mm. And that's, that's in, incredible. Uh, we, first, it means they forgot a, a lot of these severe injuries, which tells you they were severe injuries. Um, but it's the, it's the volume, the numbers are so tremendous. And I think we've seen a change, at least in the States with children, and, and adolescents and collegiate athletes and professional athletes as well, training year round mm. and competing year round, which means there are more opportunities for a traumatic brain injury. Mm. So, you know, wh when I grew up, you played, you know, maybe football in the fall and maybe you did track in the spring or, or you did, you know, soccer in the fall and, and you ran in the spring, something but it was about a three month or four month athletic season. And, and now even for very small children, that's 12 months. So the opportunity for head injuries, I think has increased dramatically. That's a really good way of putting it. And, and I think that the variability in the response is quite uh, fascinating. Um, I, I could tell you that at, at you know, the level of the, the literature, uh, I think supports this, but also what we see in practice or in our personal lives, you might know someone who's had a concussion who was fine seven days later, which plenty of the athletes are. But you might not also know people who six months later, they're still having headaches, dizziness, memory problems, um, concentration problems, things like that. Uh, so I, I think any treatment we can come up to come up with to mitigate this is a huge priority in youth sports, collegiate sports, professional sports. Um, and, and that's kind of how I got pulled into that direction by really thinking about the impact we could have with some simple nutrition strategies. So interesting. How did you find going into brain metabolism? Was it a bit overwhelming or did you enjoy it? I have no idea what I'm talking about. That's what I, that's what I felt like the first day. That's what I feel like years later. 
Yeah. Um, I, I spent so much time dedicated to skeletal muscle and thinking about muscle. And I think it's very important to respect this difference. You know, I know who the exercise brain people are and, and I'll, I can call them and, and ask them if what I'm saying makes sense. And, and I know um, some research psychologists, particularly ones in the military, mm-hmm. and, and they study fatigue and concentration completely differently than an exercise physiologist muscle person would. So it, it's brought me great opportunities to collaborate uh, and, and to respect the differences. And, and even some of the things at the, the basic you know, level, the structural level and, and you know, metabolic pathway level, something like creatine in muscle and creatine in brain has some really important differences. Amazing. Can we delve into a bit of the creatine side just for, you know, I guess our listeners who are like, what is this creatine that he keeps talking about? So um, creatine is something that's in your body naturally. um, And you also consume it in your diet. So because 95% of the creatine is stored inside your skeletal muscles, if you eat uh, any type of muscle, so lean meat, chicken, fish, uh, things like that, you're going to consume creatine in your diet. So we, we produce about one gram of creatine per day. And we eat, if you're an omnivore, if you eat meat, you eat about a gram of creatine per day. And it's uh, produced in your body, and then it's transported into your skeletal muscles where it's stored, or you eat it, and it's transported in your bloodstream to your skeletal muscles where it's stored. So creatine is used to produce ATP to provide your muscles with the energy to contract along with carbohydrate and along with fat. It's a fuel to replenish the ATP supply. Now, creatine is the preferred fuel when exercise intensity is maximal. So brief maximal intensity exercise, run hundred meters, that's going to rely primarily on the creatine that's in your muscles. And um, there's the research dates back to the early 1800s. And the, the experimentation with athletes in practice was going on in some countries in the probably the late 70s and the 1980s. But in the early 90s, uh, Roger Harris published a paper that showed that under normal circumstances, a healthy individual could supplement their diet with creatine and their muscle levels would increase. So, so really the analogy here is between creatine loading and carbohydrate loading. So your, your muscles are full of carbohydrate. If you consume more carbohydrate, you can top off the tank and then that would improve exercises that rely heavily on carbohydrate, like running a marathon. If your, your muscles are filled with creatine, if you supplement with creatine, you can top off the tank and then for exercises and activities that rely heavily on that energy system, your performance should be improved. And that would be a sprint, whether it's in the middle of a soccer game or just a sprint on the track or a set of squats in the weight room, maximal exercise, brief and intense would be enhanced with creatine supplements. And, you know, subsequent to that 1992 paper, hundreds of papers were published demonstrating a performance effect. Uh, So creatine is incredibly well studied for providing beneficial effects to muscular um, activities. Mm-hmm. Anything under 30 seconds at max 
there's a, a, a strong chance you're going to improve performance if you can increase your muscle creatine stores. So if it's only from animal products that you're getting creatine, what does that mm -hmm. relate to for those who might be uh, vegetarian or vegan? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And again, we had to learn later on that vegetarian muscle and vegetarian brain, when it comes to creatine, there's a different things happening. So in, in skeletal muscle, uh, in the blood and in the muscle, vegetarians have less creatine. So it's creatine is classified as a non-essential nutrient because your body can produce it. And your body can produce it enough, enough of it so that you don't have uh, adverse health consequences. But that doesn't mean you're at optimal levels to support athletic performance. So vegetarians do have less creatine in their system. And what's interesting is that the, the primary determinant of how much of an increase you'll have in your muscle creatine when you supplement is your starting level. So it's, it's the gas tank analogy. If the tank's half full and you add gas, you can fill up the tank a lot. If the tank is full, then you can really only get a little bit more in there. So if you were born with high creatine levels, you'll have a smaller response to the supplement. Uh, I've had my muscle creatine levels measured and despite um, the passion for sprinting and resistance training, and despite the fact that I, I do not enjoy endurance exercise and all the years of similar types of strength and power training, my muscle creatine levels are very low. And I'll include all of the meat I've eaten in that too. Yeah. So I just have naturally low levels. And as a result, I have an enormous positive response to the supplement. Is there a theory on why there's differences, individual variants between some people and others on how much creatine they store? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm not aware of why our baseline levels are, are different. I, it's on a long list of individual differences be, between us all. Um, what's interesting about the creatine metabolism or energy production system is that it's inflexible and flexible. It's inflexible in that I've not seen good evidence to indicate that my creatine metabolism or my creatine storage becomes enhanced with sprint training. Whereas all that running you did mm. enhanced your ability to oxidize carbohydrate and mm. fat store glycogen, it changed your mitochondria. Um, but all the sprinting I did didn't do anything to the creatine in my body. Um, so it's inflexible in terms of training, but in terms of diet and supplement, supplementation, very yeah. flexible. So I can supplement and increase my levels 20, 30, 40%, or I can become a vegetarian. And within a few weeks, my levels will decrease 20, 30, 40%. And how does the creatine um, differ? Because you mentioned with vegetarian, vegan athletes, you'll see a difference in the brain creatine. Is that the same in how, what you've delved into now with the brain metabolism and how creatine responds? Well, it's the same, the same creatine. And mm. something I had to learn was that um, how metabolically active the brain is. Because I, I was in skeletal muscle world, right? Yeah, please share. So the brain makes up about 2% of your body mass. And it brain metabolism makes up about 20% of your basal metabolic rate. So the brain is very metabolically active and guess what's in there? Creatine, phosphocreatine, ATP to support healthy brain function. 
Now, the, the, must, the difference here in metabolism is that the muscles are really designed to take up creatine from the outside. Muscles don't manufacture creatine. That's manufactured elsewhere in your body or you ingest it in your diet. So it, muscles are designed for external creatine to get inside so it can be used to resynthesize ATP. But the brain has the metabolic machinery to manufacture creatine. So it's, it, it has its own supply and appears to be somewhat resistant to exogenous or external sources. So if we look at the, the muscles of vegetarians, they have less creatine as an omnivore. If we look at the brains of vegetarians, they have the same amount of creatine as an omnivore. So in, in terms of a, a subtle stimulus, like eating less meat, it seems like the brain protects itself. So we were talking about uh, the differences between creatine synthesis uh, between tissues. So the brain can synthesize its own creatine, which might make it uh, resistant to supplementation or at least might require some different dosing strategies. Um, muscle is designed to take up creatine from the outside. So uh, supplementation works for most everyone. Uh, either it will have a, a small effect, a medium effect or a large effect, but uh, everyone seems to receive uh, a, an increase in muscle creatine and, and some benefit from supplementation. So interesting. So with creatine then, who do you recommend to be taking it or considering to take it? Because obviously people have probably heard, oh, I do that exercise or I do that training. Right. Then you've also looked at that elderly population as well in your research. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And um you know, for the moment, if we leave concussion aside, yeah. if we just look at uh, physically active people, mm. uh, I, I look at creatine as a nutrient and, and I look at it as a, a, a fuel. So when, when you ask a question like who should take creatine, I, I kind of think of answering it the way I would answer who should take calcium or, or who should take B12 or, or vitamin C. There's a difference between um, replacement and supplementation. And then there's certainly a difference between trying to obtain some sort of pharmacological effect from high doses of a supplement. And, and I think what we're just doing here is optimizing intake for normal function. And um, the people at the extreme ends of the scale, that would be your, your elite athletes and your frail elders, I believe have the most to benefit, right? In, in terms of, you know, small improvements in performance are critical, you know, uh, at the Olympic levels, you know, the difference between the gold medal and 10th place is hundreds of a second, you know, with an elderly person, the difference between a fall and, and having the muscle strength to get upstairs is, is life or death. So I, I think those are the groups who are, they would benefit the most, but everyone else in the middle, if we just look at it in the same way we would look at calcium or carbohydrate, you know, what are your goals? What are your objectives in terms of fitness and, and what's your diet like? So if we fix your diet and we get to a diet that you can sustain and it's still low in calcium, then we talk supplement. And, and if we fix your diet, we get to something that you can sustain and helps you maintain your body weight and helps you maintain your, your fitness, but it's really low in creatine, then maybe we consider that as a supplement. 
it's food food first always for me amazing <laughs> such a good response and so aligned like it's yeah absolutely there's so many wins that can be gained first but then there's supplements for a reason to supplement with if needed but this it is the word supplement i think gets misconstrued or we we've forgotten the actual initial definition or initial term that was supplementing um, what we were eating or um, needing. Absolutely. But if, if I have a, a widely studied, mm. safe, effective, widely available, inexpensive dietary supplement that increases strength, muscle mass and improves activities of daily living in older adults, how could I not think positively about, about that as a recommendation? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The research in this is just phenomenal. And it's almost a shame that it became a bodybuilding supplement and lost its name yeah. in that kind of area. Well, I'm happy to see that science has progressed. You know, at, at the beginning of my career, you know, I, I was told, frankly, mm -hmm. if, if you get tagged as a supplement researcher, that's the end of your career because that's just bad. And I thought, why is it bad? You can do bad supplement research, but you can do great supplement research. You can use the best methods and the best screening. And, um, you know, why is it just always bad? And, you know, there was a bias not that long ago. And now if you look at the literature, all of the things that you talk about as a sports dietitian, you see being discussed, you know, very heavily in the successful aging literature. So now we're really studying um, protein intake in older adults. And, and we've shown that they, they, you know, as they get older, as you get older, you develop like an anabolic resistance. So old people need more protein than younger adults. And, and, you know, now we're studying how much protein do older adults actually eat? You know, even in the hospital, it's a struggle to get them to minimal levels. And now we're talking about optimal levels. So everything we talk about from a muscle building and strengthening perspective, I think has real value for so many different segments of the, the population. And what we're ignoring today, which would be a huge other discussion, are, are patients with uh, different types of neurodegenerative diseases who have the same issues. They're losing muscle mass, they're losing strength, they're losing function. You know, as a, a, one example would be muscular dystrophy. You know, there's a group that can't do aggressive, progressive, heavy resistance training, mm. right? Because uh, their muscles can't recover from it. It'll, it'll just cause more damage at some point. Um, what medications do we have for dystrophies? Not much, mm. you know? So again, uh, a safe, widely studied, widely available, inexpensive supplement that could help uh, I'm, I'm glad we're at the point in science where we're open-minded enough to see that that's, that's worth pursuing. Absolutely. And thank you so much for all the research that you've done so far to help it get to that point. It's just awesome. It's been absolute. There's yeah. a, a, lot, a lot of people doing great research on individual nutrients uh, or, you know, nutrient combinations and, and how they can support both performance and health. Mm. It's, it's a great time to be in the field. It's very cool. So let's now move to how you went from, you know, I guess that creatine side to the brain, because, you know, when we're talking about how the brain metabolism works, how much it uses, is there right. something that happens in concussion to the brain that made you go, oh, hang on, creatine might be useful there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I should say first that there, there's, um, there was a paper published that showed that um, if you supplemented creatine humans, human study, your brain creatine levels increased. This was Deschent and colleagues published in 1998. And I sent it to my mentor, the abstract in an email. And I said, sarcastically, I said, see, creatine makes you smarter. It actually <laughs> does everything because we were so focused on muscle. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and said, why would anyone study creatine in the brain? And I said, I have no idea. Um, and then we, we saw a report about changes in cognitive processing. Mm -hmm. So memory or, or focus or mathematical processing, different types of tests um, to challenge your, your brain, the same way we would measure muscle function in the lab, but with the brain. So I got pulled in that direction because I, I found it fascinating. It was natural to look at things like cognitive function right alongside muscle function with the nutrient that, that I had spent, you know, at, at least a decade or more at that point studying. And it also really, uh, to me, made sense with the successful aging um, passion that I have. So if I can give you a simple nutrient improves your muscle function and also your focus or your concentration or your, your short-term memory or your long-term memory, yeah. this needs to be done. This research needs to be done. So I, I was pulled in that direction. Now, the muscle literature on creatine supplementation since the early 90s, there's many, many papers that show um, when you ingest creatine, your muscle creatine levels increase. There's literally hundreds mm -hmm. that show um, when you ingest creatine, your muscular performance in improves. The brain literature is much smaller, but it's pretty convincing. So there's uh, about a dozen labs who can measure brain creatine and are interested in studying creatine supplementation. So out of a dozen studies, I think nine of them showed that um, recommended doses of creatine in humans can increase brain creatine levels. Uh, now, whereas muscle, we might see an average increase of 20% in brain, it's more like five, maybe 10% at the high end. So you, you, you start to get an idea that the brain's, unless it needs it, is a little resistant to exogenous creatine. And after, you know, we started to see those studies of brain levels of creatine, we started to see more and more studies of cognitive processing. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's 15 studies at this point. And if I remember correctly, I think 13 of them have showed improved cognitive function. And what do you and, mean by cognitive function, Eric? Yeah, so it, it's, you know, we, we have to learn this whole area that, that um, some researchers, this is all they do. And, and for us, this was new. So a lot of these things are measured by, I guess I would use the words response time and accuracy. So um, a simple test would, would be reaction time on, on the computer. You know, so something appears in the computer at random time intervals and you tap when you see it. Reaction time. Uh, and we would also measure um, a more complex reaction time task like tap when you see the red light, but not when the green light flashes. And then there's you know, simple mathematical equations and you're supposed to answer quickly, but accurately. 
Mm. So, you know, what's three plus four minus two? Answer fast and correct and be correct. Mm. And, and repeatedly getting hit with mathematical equations like that, little memory exercises, uh, things like the Stroop test, which a lot of people remember from their psychology classes, or they've played with the Stroop test video on YouTube. Uh, and in some of these studies, in many of these studies, uh, these types of tests showed an improvement. Mm. Now, the, the difficult thing here is that these studies are so remarkably different, right? There's old people and young people. Can't really compare those. There's vegetarians and non-vegetarians. Can't really compare them. There's studies that were combined with other things that tax us mentally, mm. like uh, sleep deprivation. So uh, if I sleep deprive you, you have a cognitive impairment temporarily. Yeah, my kids are good at that. It's fine. <laughs> Do you know, I, I, was reading, I was reading something about this yesterday and I was like, oh my gosh, I should have been supplementing during my motherhood years. <laughs> or at least during the early childhood years yeah. for sure, yeah. the sleepless times. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, with, with cognitive uh, function, sleep deprivation impairs it, but creatine supplements attenuate that impairment. So they kind of rescue the, the healthy brain when you have that stress. And if you combine cognitive, uh, or excuse me, sleep deprivation with exercise, creatine supplementation rescues you from that. Um, and, but you can't compare those studies to a resting study where there's no challenge. Mm. Um, now what's fascinating here is with all this noise, right? old versus young, vegetarians versus non-vegetarians, sleep deprived or um, extreme exercise or nothing, we still have an overwhelming majority of the studies showing creatine improves some aspects of cognitive processing. To me, that's incredibly compelling mm. that with all that noise, we have this nutrient and it's still powerful enough to have an effect. So I went from you know, I only want to live inside a skeletal muscle cell to these things are completely connected. And, and to me, I think it's kind of a bit like I say, I can never separate nutrition and exercise. I, now I can't separate the brain and the muscle, which has complicated my life. But um, to be fair, if we're going to talk about physical activity or um, human performance or, or eating behaviors or anything we have to include the brain. And it, I think at this point in time, we're, we're seeing more respect for uh, different systems and different tissues, different organs in our exercise physiology programs and, and in our dietetic programs, because, you know, it, it was very different in the beginning. We were just studying cardiovascular and, and then um, musculoskeletal. Absolutely. And I think the um, research coming out about the microbiome, the gut mind connection, I think it's all starting to piece together as if we're a whole human now. Like imagine that. <laughs> right. So we're almost at mind, body, spirit, but yeah, yeah. you know, for, for people like me who were trained in muscle to learn brain and, and now I have to consider the gut. Yeah. You know, so you know, when I talk about dietary supplements and people ask, a, a, you know, a probiotic question, I'm thinking someone else should be answering this question. I can tell you about the supplementation studies, but the microbiota is, 
I'm just barely there learning a little. I know it just shows that importance of niching and still owning the space of being able to ask for help, but also know um, where you're good at and, and who you should refer to. And thankfully in, in, in at least I would say, especially in sport and nutrition, um, everyone is just wonderful. I agree. You know, um, if you have a bone question and I can't answer it, I know exactly who I'm going to refer you to. And I know that they're going to answer. Yeah. If you have a question about, um, you know, gender differences in, in, in terms of um, endocrine cycles. Um, I know exactly who I'm sending you to, you know, so this is a, this is a great time to be doing what we do, um, but I never expected to be studying the brain. I know. And, and this is the interesting thing, because I think when I went into sports nutrition, I was like, oh, I've niched into sports nutrition. No, sports nutrition is like this expanse of things, and then you go again <laughs> into another bit. Yeah. One of, one of the things I've advised um, students, and, and I, I imagine people are sick of hearing me say this, is if you go into strength and conditioning or you go into sport nutrition because you only want to work with um, healthy elite athletes, you should take some clinical nutrition classes and some clinical exercise physiology classes. Because if you talk to anyone in the field, you're, you have diabetic athletes, you have athletes with depression, you have athletes on medication, you have athletes with disordered eating, you know, clinical nutrition and clinical exercise physiology is part of healthy sport nutrition. 100%. And when I was going for the job at the Australian Institute of Sport, I missed out the first year I went for it. And the feedback was, you need to work in a hospital a little bit more. I was like, you're kidding me. Like, I want to work with athletes. Like, no, you need more clinical experience. I was like, oh, okay, I will do that. And I am so grateful that I did, but it just seems so far away from where I wanted to be. Yes, it's it's hard for the, the students to hear me say it. Yeah. But um, I, I when I say it, I try to have practicing sports dietitians next to me yes. so they can they can nod and agree i will nod it, and agree for you yes absolutely it's, important it's been your experience absolutely 100 yeah there's just such a big array in there and when we're looking at um that creatine supplementation i just find that so interesting so thank you so so much for all that background and obviously you know i have so many more questions but i guess the one thing that i get all asked really frequently with creatine before we move on to some more concussion questions is okay. around the weight gain and that water weight and the yeah. concern around that so here's you know m maybe one of the instances where you should really closely consider creatine supplements uh, creatine attracts water into your muscle cells just like carbohydrate right? That's what they teach us in, in our undergraduate classes is that, uh, you know, glycogen attracts three times its weight in water. So on, on the one hand, creatine doesn't really do anything much different. It attracts water. Um, and there are some very positive effects of hyperhydrating a cell, makes the cell more anabolic, um, you know, uh, improves, you know, I think, growth factor expression. There's a lot of great things about hyperhydrating a cell, but if you're a weight class athlete and you take creatine and you load your muscles with creatine, your muscle creatine levels will stay elevated for a month or a month and a half without the supplement, which means that that water that you attracted inside your muscles is going to stay. So the weight gain stays. So, you know, for weight class athletes, they'll reduce their carbohydrate intake and they'll lose weight from losing glycogen 
and water very quickly. That doesn't happen with creatine. So if you're a weight class athlete, the weight is kind of stuck on you. And it creates a circumstance where an athlete might consider, you know, more risky weight loss practices because they might not make weight. That's going to be, you know, what they feel like is catastrophic. And, uh, you know, athletes, coaches, dietitians should be aware that the associated weight gain that comes with creatine supplements, it's, it's tied to the increase in muscle creatine and the washout period. And, and subsequently the period it'll take you to get back to normal weight is over a month. I think research shows a month at least. Yeah. And you've really got to weigh that up in so many different aspects. So yeah, absolutely reach out for support if you need help with that. Cause that is a big decision to make because also the power to weight ratio and all those types of things so that you're making sure that you're, I'm just getting the performance benefit. So, you know, there's also the issue of if you're not a weight class athlete, you get this small metabolic benefit, but do you get um, possibly an ergolytic effect from a change in your biomechanics? Mm. Cyclists seem to benefit from creatine. Uh, It enhances, and these are some nice published studies, it enhances their sprinting ability if you put the sprints during an endurance challenge or after an endurance challenge, which is pretty much the description of cycling, but they're not weight bearing. So if I, can I make the leap to a runner who's carrying an extra, you know, few kilos of weight uh, because of creatine and water is the metabolic advantage. Is that going to outweigh the biomechanic change, biomechanical changes? We haven't really studied that well. And, and, and to make it even more complicated, we could ask the same question about a team sport athlete, someone who competes in an intermittent sport. So there, there's still plenty of work to do in the muscle function arena. Um, and, and a lot of them, I think, relate to weight gain. Yeah, so interesting. All right. Now let's flick the switch a little bit to concussion because I know you're going to share some pretty nice stuff on what actually happens when we get concussed in terms of like the, the sleep, the mood, the, all those shifts and changes that you were mentioning earlier. I, you know, so we have all of these changes that we can see on the outside and and there are changes in um, sensitivity to light. There's, there's headaches, there's nausea, there's confusion, there's balance disturbances. Um, the, the list, uh, you know, if, if you Google concussion and, and you look at the signs and symptoms list, it's practically endless. It's again, it's, it's a serious issue because of the list of things that are affected is so large. Mm. Um, and then it might be resolved in a week or it might linger. What's happening on the inside is what's very, very fascinating. And um, with a, a mild traumatic brain injury, there's an alteration in ATP demand mm-hmm. in your brain. So th- this is an alteration that's based on hypoxia and, and an alteration in blood flow. And w- what we say is that it creates a hypo, a hypo energetic state. Now, that's kind of an oversimplification. What it seems to do is it creates a hyper energetic state, which leads to this like depressive wave of a hypoenergetic state, a low energy state in, in the brain. And, and kind of no matter how you say it, it's a cellular energy crisis. And, and one of the things here that got me interested was that uh, brain creatine levels decrease with a brain injury. So 
we knew that brain glucose decreased, but then we looked at some, uh, you know, other literature and, and made this connection that, um, you know, a concussion causes a reduction in a brain energy supply. There's a cellular energy crisis. So if I can replace the creatine that's been depleted, uh, again, with a, a, a simple dietary supplement, then I'm, I think I'm onto something really big here. Now, additionally, in terms of beyond the cellular energy crisis, there's um, serious membrane dis uh, disruption and calcium influx. There's um, mitochondrial dysfunction, increased oxidative stress, uh, increased inflammation. And um, I can show you an image if, if you'd like. Yeah, let's uh, do that. Um, and that. for those listening, don't worry, you won't miss out. I will link you to the image um, that you can go to. So what is, let's see. Can you see that paper right there? Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, everything I'm describing is on this schematic about the neurometabolic cascade of a concussion, of a traumatic brain injury. You can see how complicated it is. Yeah, it's what Professor John Hawley call and Louise call alphabetic soup. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I mean, even the figure legend is, is massively long for a figure legend. What's important here is that weapons directly because of the injury, mm. where you see red, you're seeing overlap with creatine biology. Mm. So panel A is what happens with the injury. Panel B is the cascade of events that results from what happens after that. And again, in red, you have overlap with creatine biology. So not only do creatine levels decline, but creatine could assist with providing more fuel, repolarizing membranes, um, improving dysfunctional mitochondria, combating reactive oxygen species, um, you know, um, improving calcium handling. And if you don't address these issues, there's kind of a more um, a, like a secondary or even a third effect and creatine, you know, provides energy and handles calcium even in that latter stage. Mm. So if you step back and look at this figure, you see red all over it, and that's the overlap between creatine biology and concussion biology. And the table from this paper, this is not my work, but it's a wonderful review article by Dean and colleagues. Mm. In the first column, they're showing you the traumatic brain injury pathology. In the second column, they're showing you the role of creatine. Mm, yeah, I'll definitely share that, guys, it, um, for those listening. And, it's really helpful. You know, and what's, what I try to teach my students is that the way we develop medications and drugs is we target one gene, one metabolic pathway, one effect. And even when we do that, we still get side effects. Mm. Nutrition is different and exercise is different because it, it has this uh, total body effect. And mm. if you look at this small example of one tissue and, and, um, a challenge like a brain injury, we have creatine, you know, restoring um, membrane potentials, handling calcium, which is going to prevent damage to the mitochondria. We have reducing react reactive oxygen species, which could help with oxidative stress, um, protecting against glutamate toxicity, swelling, inflammation, and on and on and on. Mm. 
And so that's, I think what's um, really what got me excited was the overlap between creatine biology and concussion biology. You know, I, I was never a concussion person. I don't consider myself a concussion person, but um, it's the overlap between these, these two circumstances, um, brain creatine metabolism and, and a traumatic brain injury that I found quite fascinating. So we have this body of literature that shows that creatine supplementation improves brain creatine levels. And then we have this other body of literature that shows that creatine supplementation can improve cognitive processing. So the next question is, do we have any literature on creatine and brain injury? Mm. And, and that's where the literature becomes very difficult because it's really hard to study concussion in humans. Yeah. It's like studying cramping. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's the exact same. That's a wonderful analogy. It's the same thing. We don't know who's going to get one yeah. and we don't know when. And yep. we don't know when, when they're going to get uh, to us to enter into a research study or be evaluated. So we have a lot of, um, I don't want to say circumstantial evidence mm -hmm. because that, that sounds negative, but I'd rather, I'd rather be conservative here. Mm -hmm. uh, we have um, one fantastic study where they simulated the effects of a concussion by um, exposing humans to hypoxia. So it's a human study. This is from Turner and colleagues. Wow. They had them breathe low oxygen air, mm. which causes all sorts of cognitive deficits. Mm. And then it was a creatine supplementation study on top of that. And the uh, cognitive dysfunction that develops is attenuated with creatine, but not placebo supplementation. Mm. So um, that was, you know, uh, I think a, a major undertaking. Um, we can look at animal models. Mm. Now I'm the type of person who, if there's any human research, I don't wanna talk about animal models at all because I, I respect the fact that there's species differences and, and we should always be trying to leap to the human model. And, you know, I believe animal models, if you have to do it, it better inform the human studies. So they can do traumatic brain injury studies in animals. Mm. And the tissue damage in um, mice and rats, I think in, in mice, it's reduced 36% in creatine-supplemented mice. The tissue damage in rats is reduced like 50%. Um, that's impressive. That's and and there's, there's a lot of animal studies on hypoxia and traumatic brain injury models. So brain injury from hypoxia or brain injury from trauma. And they show a very strong and very large effect and beneficial effect of creatine. Mm. Now, mice aren't humans and rats aren't humans, right? Um, we have two studies, uh, clinical studies. So they didn't come from the exercise science community or the athletic world. These are on children in hospitals who've had traumatic brain injuries. And um, they're, they're not doing, you know, the cognitive tests that we do in our lab. They're doing the types of things in hospitals that they do to uh, measure your, your improvement after an injury. And what they found with these children who were ingesting creatine in the hospital after brain injury, um, improved cognition, um, improved behavior, uh, decreased uh, headaches, dizziness, and fatigue uh, in the children with brain injuries. Mm. And this has been published. So it's not, it's beyond circumstantial, mm. right? Uh, to me, 
Um, but do we have a clinical trial on concussed elite athletes and, and their recovery? Mm-hmm. We do not. Uh, will we ever? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, uh, a lot of the concussion literature, you know, uh, is focused on protective equipment and it should be and, and evaluation and it should be and policy about sport and, and it should be, but uh, that's not the type of stuff I do. You know, I'm a nutrition and exercise person. And, and the way I look at uh, what we have right now, um, I would say that under normal circumstances, we would not promote um, a dietary supplement um, to prevent um, concussion-related damage or to enhance recovery from a concussion. Under normal circumstances, we wouldn't promote that based on animal or theoretical data or, or some clinical data. But we have to combine that, I think, with the, the hundreds of studies of a performance benefit, the you know, excellent studies demonstrating safety. So you have creatine improves muscular performance, has an excellent safety profile. Um, it's widely available. It's inexpensive. Uh, athletes are taking it for potentially for a muscular benefit. If it can also offer a benefit either in terms of mental fatigue or protection from a traumatic brain injury or to help with mm-hmm. recovery from a traumatic brain injury, then in this case, that might be the more prudent recommendation than telling athletes, no, wait, wait for the clinical trial that maybe might not come or we might only get one or two of them. That's right. And when we go through that um, streamline of considering a supplement, it's first of all, you know, is it legal? Is it safe? Yes. And, you know, we, we go, yes, it's legal. Yes, it's safe. And then we go through, is it effective? Is it something that's needed? Can we do, right. else? We could do it with food? And so, you know, we have ticked those first two boxes, if you like, to then go, yes. well, if there's a possibility it's effective in one area, but we know it's effective in another area, then let's weigh up those pros and cons. And it's a very different discussion than it might have been if there's one supplement that is only used for concussion. Right. I agree with that. And, and also, I, even though it's only indirectly related, I include the studies on can creatine supplements increase brain creatine? The answer is yes. And does creatine supplementation improve cognitive processing? And the answer is yes. So um, I I have a hard time answering the question, why shouldn't an athlete who competes in a sport, they're at a high risk for traumatic brain injury, or they've had one already, why should that athlete not consider creatine? I have a hard time answering mm. th- that that question with, you know, no, they shouldn't. No, I love that. I think that's put really nicely. And you mentioned, obviously, when we're going through all the different things that happen in a concussion, there was definitely mention of, you know, things that change in terms of our carbohydrate use, um, how proteins and branched chain amino acids change. Um, calcium came up a few times. Is there other things in nutrition that you've come across that we should be considering when it comes to concussion? I, I don't. I don't think so. I'm not optimistic because I think the the biggest effect here is the energy drain, is the energy crisis. And, and that to me seems like a direct um, benefit of, of creatine. Even if that's all it did, mm. I think that would be fantastic. Mm. Um, if it also helps with mitochondrial dysfunction or um, oxidative stress, or, and, and, and we know it does these things, then those types of secondary effects, I think, are, are hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I'm not optimistic for other nutrients. I know there's a list. Um, 
I'm I'm following the literature closely on on omega fats like DHA, and I, I actually think we're you know a, a little bit more well informed with creatine and concussion than we are with omega fats in discussion. It's the same type of literature we're trying to leap from, you know, omega fat supplements or DHA supplements and cognitive function. We're trying to leap from there to concussion. We know that the brain is filled with DHA. It makes up about, I think, 97% of the omega fat in your brain. So it's, it's there just like creatine is there, but it, it's, it's mostly theoretical. It's mostly animal models. There's, there's one case study. Um, so I, I'm, my interpretation is that there's more um, in the creatine literature and, and it's uh, not a higher quality research, but it's more convincing to me right now. That doesn't mean I'm against omega fats or GHA. Um, but I think as a sports dietitian, you'd probably be having a discussion about fatty fish with your athletes, right? And to increase your body's creatine stores, mm. well, um, that's going to take more than just, you know, an extra hamburger a day. But, you know, to, you know, to have an effect on your body's DHA levels, uh, that might be, you might be able to do that with the diet. Um, yeah, I really love that because it comes back to where you first started, where you were going yeah. through, you know, they're talking about performance, but you're also talking about health at the same time. So when we have these little yes. goals, we're not just talking about one little part of that. It's like that whole picture of what else can this provide or what's the whole picture here. Now, when mm. it comes to um, when we're considering all these things, uh, around concussion is there a difference in gender is there like a have you seen anything in terms of male female having a difference there yeah i i don't know i don't know that there there is um i think there are incredible individual differences in concussion yeah i agree um and, and um i have seen that in the literature and i've seen it with my own two eyes uh, in terms of the recovery the length of the recovery the um, the severity of the injury. So I don't know that there's a, a, a gender difference, but it, it is, you know, it's going to make it even harder to study, yeah. right? Because we're, we're trying to, you know, catch this um, thing like a cramp mm -hmm. and, and, and study it. And we don't know when it's coming and we don't know who's going to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're trying to put um, a nutritional intervention whether it's creatine or, or DHA on top of that. And then we're trying to put sex differences on top of that. And this would have to be the biggest study in the world. There would be 4 billion, you know, participants. Um, so um, I, I'm unaware of anything compelling mm. to tell me there's differences here, but I'm aware this is going to be very complicated to, to study, but there's, there's enough research to convince me that creatine supplementation is, just as effective as it is in women, as it is in men. It's a fuel, it's, it's well-absorbed, well-taken up by your muscles. We're learning a lot more about dosing strategies in the, in the brain. Um, we have, um, there are men and women in these cognitive processing studies. So we believe it's effective in men and women. Um, Beyond that, we're, we're stuck at the concussion question again. You know, is it prudent to recommend? I think if it's prudent to recommend for men at this point, then it's prudent to recommend for women. I, I don't see a difference. 
Yeah. Now, the last question I've got when it comes to concussion is your discussion around energy crisis, because I think Mm -hmm. when people hear that in their mind and after you've already said, you know, 20% of our basal metabolic rate, how much we use if we were asleep all day is from our brain. Does that increase um, from concussion as part of that energy crisis? Does the sleep increase? How much energy our brain uses? um, Yeah, well, it's it, it's it's interesting because it's described as hypermetabolic at first, mm. but the hypermetabolic needs drive the hypometabolic outcome. So it goes from high to low, mm. uh, and that's because you're you're you need all this extra energy to maintain your your membranes, and you, you've got damage in there. You've got calcium influx that uh, needs to be pumped out. So um, I don't I've never seen a, it quantified, but we know that there's. Um, an increased energy demand, and then there's seemingly less energy available at the site to, mm. to satisfy that need, mm. and that sends, tends, I think, to lead to all of these second, these you know, secondary and tertiary effects. Amazing. Yeah, it's so and, and you know, creatine's not just fuel in in the body; it, it's also an energy transport uh, assistant, I would say, in the mitochondria. Right, so the phosphocreatine shuttle is is you know shuttling phosphates around the mitochondria so that oxidative phosphorylation can take place, so we can produce more energy from other sources. So if the mitochondria is broken down, create extra creatine could you know and and creatine's reduced. We certainly want to at least replace the creatine that's there. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's there's some interesting um, clinical or studies on patient populations. And some of the most interesting are from people who have a genetic or babies, children have a genetic defect in creatine synthesis. So they can't make any creatine. They, they have their, they have profound mental disabilities that they, you know, can't sit up there. So they have profound physical disabilities as well. They have no brain creatine because mm-hmm. they can't synthesize it. They don't have the enzymes in their body but creatine supplementation rescues that it rescues them and it brings them back to health. So again, it's, it's, I'm making a leap, but we, we are, you know, we have enough research on this population, many years of research to show that when the brain becomes depleted, if you can replace creatine from exogenous sources, uh, you can really improve brain health in, in that limited enzymatic deficiency condition. You know, it really remains to be seen if that will absolutely um, benefit uh, someone who's had a brain injury. Um, but as I said, what's the prudent recommendation at this point? Mm. And what else can it benefit anyway? If that's you know, sure. yeah, no, I really enjoy that. that. That's a really good way to put it. And you know, there's so many other areas when it comes to our nutrition day to day. Um, considering if we're high risk of brain injury as well and how that all relates. So, yeah, I thank you so much for your time. Like, honestly, I think I could ask you so many more questions around creatine in particular, but I will leave it there because I just looked at the time and, you know, as it is called, it is called the Compact Waffle for a reason. I am very good at waffling and enjoying Pro, pro, like probing you for more questions. So um, thank you so much. It is just so generous of you to give up your time to um, chat today. So thank you so much. Thank you for the, the opportunity and, and I'm happy to come back and chat more anytime. Amazing. I'll, I'll get my questions ready and we'll um, go again. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, Eric. Enjoy. Thank you.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I enjoyed it. Man, what an incredible guy to talk to, both in his personal life, but also what he has created and contributed in his professional life is just profound. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you absorbed all that incredible knowledge. He um, translated so many parts of it so well. So if you have any questions, though, please reach out. Um, We'll absolutely connect you to his Twitter profile um, and where you can find more about his research projects that he's done and he referred to in his podcast. Um, But we'll also um, link the Compete Nutrition website as well where you can gain a um, free assessment if you wanted to reach out and ask questions to do with anything to do with nutrition, but um, also in terms of supplementation, creatine or concussion, we can absolutely chat through uh, and get you going out from there no matter where you are in the world. It's the beauty of um, building a tech-based solution. We are able to service athletes all around the world and active every day. As you heard, we can absolutely translate everything we know in performance nutrition to you and the situation that you're in because the biggest piece of this knowledge is not necessarily the knowledge piece but how it translates and how we help you to translate it into your life so thank you so much everyone it's been an absolute pleasure i hope you enjoyed today's podcast and looking forward to the next one cheers